John chapter 4. This church, we've been walking through the book of John, and the book of John was written so that we might believe, and that by believing in his name, we might have faith, or we might have life. The book of John was written so that we could enjoy life in Christ. And as we saw last week with the woman, or last two weeks with the woman at the well, this is a, a life that comes through the living water. That Christ Himself is a fountain of living water. That Christ Himself is a is not a broken cistern like so many of the other cisterns that we have, but that He Himself gives eternal life. And we're going to see that theme continue to be developed throughout the throughout the rest of this book of John, but in particular in this, uh, in this next section. So if you'll pay attention with me as we uh, open up our Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 4, and we're going to go from verses 43 down through 54. I know if you have the ESV, that breaks the little headings, I, I know, but um, just the best way to do it. So verse 43 down through 54 is what God's Word says. After the two days he departed for Galilee... For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor, has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, they went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Father in heaven, one more time, we ask that you would make your word abide in our hearts, that through it we would believe, and that by believing in it, we would have life in your name. Pray for all these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. I'm going to ask you a, a question, which is perhaps a little bit on the nose, but I'm not one of subtlety. Um, why are you here this morning? Why are you here today? What are you hoping to get out of church? What are you hoping to get out of Christ? Maybe you're here because you, you want to get God on your side. You feel that if you do, if you come to church, you can sin in this other way later on in the week, and so you're trying to even these things out. And maybe you're here because you are longing for a sense of connection. Maybe you're here because uh, be, because of a variety of reasons. Maybe you come to God because you are hoping that by coming to God, that God will will be put in your debt. Maybe you obey God out of a sense of duty. 
thinking that you will get some merit badges at the end of the day. Why are you here today? What are you seeking from Jesus? This is a story about how Jesus meets and does not meet our expectations. This is a story about how Jesus gives us life in a, a, in a way that we're not expecting, that we don't necessarily even come looking for, but in a way that is far better than what we could ever give. And, and the story is teed off for us with this opening couple verses between verses 43 and 45, where we see that Jesus comes to Galilee. Now, before Jesus had been in Samaria, Samaria is south of Galilee, and so he goes into Galilee, and he goes to Galilee, which is where he was raised. And the, because he had kind of taken his time going through Samaria, all the other Galileans who had been down at Jerusalem when he had cleaned out the temple uh, had already beat him back home. And so the Galileans, when they see Jesus finally coming down the road, they are excited. And it says that in verse 45 that they welcomed him. And it seems like verse 44 and verse 45 are kind of at a little bit of a disjunction. Because it says in verse 44, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. But then it seems like all the Galileans are welcoming him and they're receiving him. Well, the Galileans welcome him in, not in the sense that they receive him as Savior and Lord, not in the sense that they put their faith in him, not in the sense that they want him to save them, but in the sense they're really glad that he stuck it to the Jerusalem elite. They're really glad that he put them in their place. They're really glad that he gave them a piece of his mind back in chapter 2. They don't receive him as Savior and Lord. In fact, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we were warned about this. We were warned that it says he came to his own, And his own people did not receive him. And so this story, uh, even though it seems like he's being received by uh, the people of Galilee, he's not really. And we're going to see this kind of reach its boiling point in a couple chapters in chapter 6. But for now, Jesus is in Galilee and he's in the town of Cana where he had turned water into wine, which is kind of up in the hills. And it's a little insignificant podunk village in the middle of nowhere. It's far away from this city called Capernaum. Capernaum is about... 30 miles, and when you have to walk everywhere, that's a de- decent distance. And so it's a, Capernaum is kind of one of the seaside cities on the Lake of Galilee. It's a center of industry. There's a lot going on there. It is a place of trade. It has a metropolitan feel. And there's this royal official. There's this royal official whose son gets sick, whose son gets ill. And we'll talk more about that. But the royal, this official that is listed here, is a, we're told that he's a royal official. That's the correct translation. And so he hears that Jesus, this man who had stuck it to the Jerusalem elite, this man who's a wonder worker, has come from Judea to Galilee. And we imagine that, that he has tried all of his other options. He's exhausted all of his other resources. And so he turns to Jesus as an act of desperation. It says, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, verse 48 is not the Jesus meek and mild that we're expecting. <laughs> because in verse 48 it says, Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That is about as blunt and in your face and terse and not what we're expecting as you think it is. Unless you see signs, Jesus, will you come heal my son? You're never going to believe me anyways. That's the response. And the official presses him more. 
said, Sir, come down before my child dies. But Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Almost, almost like it seems like he's brushing him off. But the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, down elevation-wise from Cana to Capernaum, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. So what time of day was it? He says it was the seventh hour, which is about 1 p.m. The fever left him. And the father knew that was the same hour that Jesus had said, go, your son will live. And it says he himself believed and all his household. And we're told there's, a, there's something more going on behind the scenes by verse 54. It says this was now the second sign that this miracle functions as a sign that it's communicating something deeper. Signs signify something that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now that's the story. That's, that's kind of how this all unfolds. And I want to ask you a question, a question which maybe seems like it has an obvious answer. Um, but I'm going to give you two, two, two ways to answer this question that are complementary, not contradictory, to distinct answers. And they are probably not what you're expecting the answer to this question would be. So the question is, does this man get what he wants? Does this man get what he wants? He comes to Jesus. Jesus would come down and heal his son. And Jesus heals his son. It seems like he gets what he wants, doesn't it? Not exactly. That's the first answer. Not exactly. Jesus does not exactly give him what he wants. Pay attention to what it says in verse 47 and then 49. It says, this man, he went to him. That's the royal official. He went to him and asked him to come down. He asked him to come down and heal his son. And then again, in verse 49, it says, Sir, come down before my child dies. And then it says in, in verse 51, as he was going down without Jesus is the implication. And then again, we see in verse 48, So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The question is, what does this man want? in part, what he wants is that Jesus would heal his son. That's part of what he wants. But it's not just that he wants Jesus to heal his son, it's that he wants to see Jesus heal his son. You understand the distinction between those two things? He wants Jesus to heal his son, but he wants to be there for it. He wants it to be an experience. He wants it to be a miracle. He wants it to be a spectacle. He wants, it, he wants the heavens to split open. He wants, the, he wants glory to come down. He feels like he, he deserves this. He's expecting an experience. And Jesus heals his son, but he doesn't come down. Jesus does, he does heal his son, but he refuses to give this man what he wants. And oftentimes... We play the same game with Jesus. Oftentimes we come to Jesus hoping to kind of bribe him with our faith. That we say, Jesus, I'll believe in you, comma, if you make this big problem in my life go away. Or if I get suddenly the heavens open up and I can see you. Or if you fill up my bank account or heal this cancer or 
heal my marriage or make my children obedient or do something about the dog. We often come to Jesus trying to bribe him with our obedience, trying to trade loyalties. This man comes to Jesus trying to hold his faith hostage and have Jesus be the negotiator. And Jesus just isn't interested in playing that game. He wasn't interested in playing that game with the royal official. He's not interested in playing that game with us. And this flies in our face because we like to pride ourselves that if we can have an experience, just something amazing that will smack us in the face, then we know that we can believe. And we wait until that happens. We wait until whatever it is we came to Jesus to work before we believe. And then we get frustrated when Jesus doesn't want to play that game. Now, I want to press on this just a little bit. We often operate under the assumption that if we just had that experience, if we could just see the skies open up or we could just see um, this this terrible disease be healed or, or we could just get out of this crisis that we would really believe. And, and you know that's not true. Let me give you an example. How many of you have ever, and this is church, so safe place, okay? How many of you have ever been pulled over for speeding? I'm doubtful. There might be more. Okay, keep hands up. How many of you who've ever been pulled over for speeding sped again after you got pulled over for speeding? Yeah, you knew better. Ricky, that's, I, I admire you doing that right in front of your parents. That was, that was brave. <laughs> All right, one more, one more question. How many of you sped past the spot that you got pulled over for speeding on the way to church this morning? You know better. You know you could get pulled over at any second. You know that you could get in trouble, and yet you do it anyways. Um, I, I read this this week by uh, somebody on, online. says this by B.J. Gallagher. Our problem isn't lack of information. Bookstores are stocked with countless books about how to eat less and exercise more. Dozens of experts advise us to save and invest our money. Wise friends warn us to stay away from troublesome relationships. We have plenty of information on getting rid of clutter, managing time, taking care of ourselves, managing our finances, fulfilling our career dreams. But all this information doesn't change our behavior. We know what to do, but we still don't do it. In fact, sometimes we do just the opposite of what we know is good for us. We overeat and underexercise. We spend every last nickel or more. We pick the wrong partners to fall in love with. We buy stuff we don't need, procrastinate and fritter away time, neglect ourselves, mismanage our, bo- our money, and bail out on ourselves in countless ways. If anyone else treated us the way we treat ourselves, we'd be outraged. The, the, the barrier to belief is contrary to our expectations, not that we have, haven't experienced this amazing thing. I mean, you think of the, the children of Israel. 
that God had just brought them out of the land of Egypt. He had just brought all these plagues to pass on Egypt. He had just split the sea open. He had just brought them through on dry ground. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. He gives them the covenant. And the very first thing that they do when they get the chance, they turn away from him. How many times as a pastor have I sat down with someone and pleaded with them, don't do this. It's a foolish thing to do. It's stupid. Don't live this way. You know better. Only to see that person fall into the mistakes that they know better than. Christians, the barrier to belief, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're an unbeliever. Maybe you're just waiting for God to split the sky and for, uh, for Christ to come down and choirs of angels to finally get your attention. And if that's true of you, you wouldn't believe even if that happened. The barrier to belief is not, not that we are lacking for an experience. And Jesus, because he loves this man, and because he loves us, doesn't give him what he wants. Not exactly. He doesn't come down. He doesn't do an amazing miracle right before his eyes. He doesn't make the skies open up. He just puts a very simple decision in front of him. Will you believe? Will you trust me? Will you receive me? And maybe you're here this morning and you are waiting for Jesus to do something amazing. You're holding your faith hostage from him. And before you today is not an amazing experience. I'm not that great of a preacher. It's a simple decision. Will you believe? Will you trust me? Will you follow me? So no, not, Jesus does not exactly Jesus does not exactly answer this man's request. He doesn't exactly give him what he wants. He doesn't come down with him. He doesn't He just puts this decision in front of him. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to believe? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to grab hold of me? It's the first answer. The second answer is this. And again, these are complementary, not contradictory. Jesus answers this man's prayer in a way that is greater than he ever could have expected. He answers this man's prayer in a way that is greater than he ever could have expected. He does far more for him than he even knew to ask. Uh, I, I want to hone in on this idea. This man is, called, is said to be a royal official, a royal official. Uh, the word in the Greek is basilikos, which is related to the Greek word for king, basileus. And uh, it, it has this idea of someone who works in the royal court. And we, um, we know that ruling over Galilee as a puppet king during this time was a man named Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, he's the son of King Herod the Great, um, who's, who has a certain amount of infamy. Herod the Tetrarch, and he is um, he has control over most of Galilee at this point. If you don't know the story of Herod the Tetrarch, if you don't know much about him, um, we're told a little bit about him in the New Testament. 
we're told that he, while his brother was still alive, kind of stole his brother's wife from him. And not like his, oh, we're brothers, but like his actual brother. He stole his brother's wife from him. And so John the Baptist, um, you know, a preacher and a prophet, rebukes him for that. And Herod the Tetrarch's uh, response is to imprison him and put him in jail for that in Matthew 14. And while this is all going on, Herod the Tetrarch throws this big party. And his wife, a.k.a. sister-in-law, got to keep those two things sends her daughter, a.k.a. his niece, to go in and do a dance in front of Herod the Tetrarch. And it says Herod is pleased in Matthew 14. And, of course, Herod agrees to give up to half his kingdom to this young woman for for this. And she goes and she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, here's the point in saying all of that. If somebody was in with Herod, if somebody was one of his royal officials, one of his boys, then he could get away with anything. There were no resources that were not at his disposal. That a, a servant of Herod the Tetrarch could get away with whatever he wanted. There was money and power. He could manipulate. There were relationships. And we can imagine that this man did everything he could, used every connection he had, used every penny he had, and none of that could give his son life. None of that could bring life and healing. And it's not a mistake that this passage is right on the heels of the first part of John 4, where Jesus told the where Jesus told the uh, woman at the well, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Where Jesus claimed to be a, a fountain and a well of living water. This is a reference to Jeremiah 2.13. We saw this a couple weeks ago. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, Jesus is not only interested in healing this man's daughter, but he is interested in giving this man life. He's interested in giving this man true life, living water, which is why this is emphasized again in verse 50. He says, go, your son will live. And then again it says, Uh, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he believed in all his household. It's the idea that Jesus has given this man a greater gift than physical healing. He's given him eternal life, true life, the well of living water. Christians, this is what God has done for this man, and this is what God does for each of us. That when we come to him with faith, we get true life, living water. It's the kind of life that gives us meaning and hope in the midst of sorrow. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians says, Outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Elsewhere, Paul says, we are struck down but not destroyed. It's the, kind of, it's the kind of true life that can give us hope when 
everything else in our life seems hopeless. It's kind of true life that can keep us going as we're walking through the, the shadow of death. God gives to his people true life because of faith. While Jesus isn't interested in playing negotiator while we try to get, hold our faith hostage and get a ransom for it, he is interested in giving the person who comes to him, who has used every other means at his disposal, who has come to the end of himself, who has exhausted all of his means. He's interested in giving the beggar bread, the thirsty water, the broken healing, the dead life. What is before us today is a decision of sorts. Do we want life? And are we willing to receive it by faith alone? And that's what this passage is about. That Jesus gives true life to the person who has faith alone. Who's willing to receive it as it comes. Who's willing to receive it on its own. So let me turn to apply this, some of this to us. Number one, Jesus does not need to prove himself to you just important to recognize that oftentimes we come to jesus we think well jesus i'll believe in you if you will do x for me jesus doesn't need to do that he is lord and he he is not um he, he is not beholden to our desires for what we want him to do he doesn't need to prove himself to us which means too but he does want to give us true life life and hope. He wants to satisfy our souls. He wants to give us living water. He wants to feed the hungry. He wants for those who are broken to find hope and healing in him. Which means, number three, there is a decision before us today. Will we receive him by faith? Will we believe in him? Will we reach out and grab hold of him? Are we willing to accept Jesus as he is, as he comes to us, even if it means not everything else in our life suddenly makes sense? I think maybe if you're here today and maybe the Spirit's put it on your heart that you've never done that. You've never received Jesus for who he is. You've always wanted a, a kind of version of him and something else. You've always believed in him with the hope that something else will come because of it. And here's a good question to ask yourself. Would you be willing to receive Jesus even if that other thing never happened? Would you be willing to believe in him even if that big thing in your life never got better? Is Jesus on his own enough for you? What we say here often if we have Jesus and we have nothing at all, we still have everything. But if we have everything and we don't have Jesus, we really have nothing. Is that true for you? I think not only for those of us who need to make that decision for the first time, but for everyone who's a Christian, we need to cultivate a faith that continues to take Jesus at his word, that he really is enough for us. I believe that we need to continue to 
cultivate throughout our lives a, a strength, a, a, a willingness to believe, um, even um, even after we put our faith in Christ. You'll notice here that even in this short story, this man's faith grows. It says in verse uh, 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And then again in verse 52, it says, or in verse 53, sorry, it says, he himself believed and all his household. So we see that his faith grows, not just because of the word that was spoken to him, but because of who he knows that Jesus has made himself to be. We saw that last week with the Samaritans, that the Samaritans of the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, and then they themselves grow in their faith, and they believe him because they, they know that who he is. All of us, we need to grow in our faith. Let me give you three ways to cultivate a stronger faith in your life. Three ways. Number one, remember all his faithfulness to you in the past. Remember all of his faithfulness to you in the past. Um, in, our, in our house, I was telling someone about this this week. In our house up on the second floor on the white bookshelf, there is a jar and um, I think we got the jar at a thrift store, so it's not particularly valuable. But what's in it is valuable. Uh, we call it the blessing jar. And anytime we see just a clear act of God's faithfulness to us, we just put that in that jar and we save it up. So that when suffering comes, and suffering does come, when hardship and trial comes, we can take out of that jar all the blessings that God's given us, and we can remind ourselves of His faithfulness to us. We need to each remind ourselves of his faithfulness. As, a, as the men's study has been walking through Joshua, one of the things that we've pointed out again and again is that God continues to point back to his faithfulness to times before. We need to remember his faith, past works of faithfulness. Uh, number two, we need to abide in his word. We need to abide in his word. Oftentimes we think, at least myself, that Jesus is not being faithful to me right now. And often the reason that I feel that way is because I, I've been neglecting the word in my own life. And I feel anxious and out of sorts because sometimes I don't get around to reading the Bible. The Christians, we, we need to abide in his word. His word continues to remind us of all of God's faithful promises to us and how they are all yes and amen in Christ. And third, one of the ways that both of these things come together is through the gathering of the church, that we need to not neglect the gathering of the saints. Colossians tells us that we should let the word of God abide and dwell in us richly. That's a great memory verse. And then it goes on to explain how. Through singing songs and preaching and praying. All things that happen as the church gathers together, as you and I gather together with other Christians, we're singing songs to one another, reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness to us in the past week. And we're praying and we're hearing God's word out loud. Number, you guys always know I lose track of my illustrations, whatever, or my applications, whatever number the next application is this. Um, God doesn't always, and this is devastating to a particular way of thinking, God does not always give us what we want. In fact, frequently, He does not give us what we want. In fact, probably more often than not, He doesn't give us what we want. But He does give us what we need for true life. 
doesn't always give us what we want. Sometimes we say, Jesus, would you just take care of this situation? Father, would you just sort this thing out? And we imagine it working out one way. And God says, I, I have a whole different plan. It's going to look totally different than you think right now. And if I told you what it is right now, you'd be furious with me. But I promise you it's for the better. I promise you that this is the way to life. I promise you that this will give you true life. And so while that might be frustrating at times, because it's frustrating to not get the thing that you want all the time. Trust me, I have a two-year-old. It gives us life and it's for our good. And it means that his fatherly tender care is there for us. And if that's true, shouldn't that make us all the more earnest in prayer? Shouldn't that make us all the more earnest in prayer? Because if we are praying that God would do something and God says, oh, I already have an answer for that that is better than even the thing that you pray for. Uh, weekly as a pastor, I am praying for things that I have no idea what to even pray for for that thing. And what do you pray for for this situation? And we trust when we pray that God actually has a better answer for that prayer than even we do. I would say number seven. I've kind of already hit on this. I think whatever number this application is. Um, I kind of already hit on this, but it's worth reemphasizing. If Jesus, and if the Father, and if the Spirit, don't give us the thing that we want, if he doesn't make everything in our life sort out, if he doesn't make that problem at work go away, if he doesn't make our marriage perfect, if he doesn't dump our bank account with a bunch of money, is he still enough for us? Is he still enough for us when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? If the only thing that we have is him to guide us, is that still enough for us? Is it still enough for us when everything else in our life seems to be falling apart and he's the only thing that we can stand on? Is Jesus still enough for us when we are really thirsty and he is the only well in town? When we're really hungry and he is the only bread that we get to eat? See, this is devastating, I think. This way of thinking is devastating for the so-called prosperity gospel. The, the so-called prosperity gospel would tell us that if you do works of faith or if you uh, believe or you put in seed that God will, God, will, uh, God will bless you. And the blessings in your life are dependent upon the amount of faith that you have. And what that does to the person who is being deceived by it, and that is the correct word, is it tells them that when their kid gets cancer or when they lose their job, or when everything else in their life falls apart, that it's because they didn't have enough faith. I've been to enough of the dark places of this world. I've sat with enough broken people. I've been at enough bedsides to know that when everything else in your life is falling apart, you don't need more stuff. You need more of him. And that if Jesus doesn't give you that thing that you want, yes, he really is enough for you. 
He really is enough when nothing else in your life makes sense. When everything else just is confusing and bewildering, he is enough for you. The problem with the prosperity gospel, listen to this, is not, it's not that it tells you God wants to give you too much. It tells you that God wants to give you too little. As if the eternal hunger in our souls could be filled and satisfied by more earthly things. When in reality, God has given each man a desire for him. So that when we're in Christ, though we're persecuted, though we're destroyed, though we're cut down, though everything else in our life seems to be letting us down, we know that he will hold us fast. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your son is enough. We thank you that You are kind and gracious enough to not give us everything that we want. Even though we sit down on the floor and we kick and we stomp, you love us enough to say, here is the way to life, to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, I thank you that oftentimes in the brokenness of our lives, That's where you show yourself to be the most kind, the most gentle, the most firm and trustworthy. Father, I pray for anyone who's here today who's never made that simple choice to put their faith in you. Father, would you give them the courage and the boldness to do so even now? To maybe take one step of faith uh, Father, I, I, I thank you that again and again, even when we doubt it, even when we forget about it, that you show yourself to be so good and merciful and generous and faithful to us. Father, I pray for those who are here who maybe they're feeling the weight of this and maybe they're going through it. Maybe everything else in their life just is so confusing. I thank you that you are the one rock of ages that we can stand on. The one that will never be capsized in the storm. The one that will always hold us fast. So Father, we pray that you would continue to work through us, that you would let this word dwell in us richly. Pray for these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.